You're listening to Michelle Redfern and Mel Butcher on Lead to Soar, bringing you the best leadership advice and mentorship from around the world. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. All right, Tara, thank you so much for joining us today. Mel, I am thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I think there's a lot for us to talk about, and I'm going to kick us off here with a quote from your book, What Works? A Comprehensive Framework to Change the Way We Approach Goal Setting. And here in the introduction, you wrote, if you've started to question whether bigger goals, longer work hours, or productivity hacks are the best way to organize your life, you're in the right place. So talk to us about this book, just general overview, maybe a little bit about how it originated. Sure. So the origin story starts with me being a very anxious, overachieving, very goal-oriented, achievement-oriented kind of person, right? I really only understood how to structure my work and my life in terms of big, hairy, concrete goals, right? And I think that that's many of our stories, right? We grow up in a very achievement-oriented, project goal-oriented kind of world, whether it's the education system or just early career times. And so I started to notice mm, when I was about 34, 35, that this was not working for me, that I kept trying to hit these goals. Often I would hit these goals, but at the end, once I hit the goal, it would sort of be like this big, now what feeling right now, what do I do? Is this really even what I want in the first place? Am I happier with my life now that I've hit this goal? And by and large, the answer was no, I was becoming more anxious more achievement oriented and less connected to the people around me, the people that I really cared about. And so I really started to deconstruct. How can I think about doing things differently? How can I choose things to focus on that aren't achievements, that aren't milestones, that aren't these little steps up the ladder? And as I started to do that, I noticed for myself, sort of all of the internal messages (laughs) that I had, all of the stories that I was playing out with myself on a day-to-day basis and started to recognize that, well, if I don't change these stories, if I don't learn what's behind these stories, where they come from, how they're impacting my actions, then I'm not actually going to be able to change my behavior very much. And so the line that you wrote, I mean, I think that for me, I often hear people say, you know, this productivity stuff, I'm not into it anymore. Or like, it's just not working for me. Or like, I'm ambitious, but these goals that other people are going after, like, I'm just not into them. And yet they don't find an alternative I didn't find an alternative to structuring life and work in another way. And the reason for that is because of these very deeply ingrained cultural, political, economic systems and stories that create sort of this very conformist 
way of organizing our lives. And so for me, the book was this documentation of my personal journey. At the same time, it's sort of unpacking and explaining these different stories and systems and trying to put forth an alternative that people can use to still challenge themselves and work hard when they want to, but so that it's not all about checking the next box off the list. Yeah. And I definitely want to get into some of those cultural roots. And before we get there, I want to just read another little excerpt here. And this is another one that just cut me very deeply as I heard it in the audiobook and uh, read it in the hard copy. You wrote, but what I found at the deepest layer of my inquiry was a quest for worthiness. The promotions, scholarships, leadership roles, and partnerships were progressively more damaging attempts to prove myself worthy. I wanted to have definitive proof that I was good enough. And I wanted evidence that maybe, just maybe, I was exceptional. I hoped that with every step up the ladder I took, I'd be closer to feeling like I was going to be okay. And then a little further down, I often found myself perched precariously on a ladder I didn't want to be on top of. Maybe comment a bit more on worthiness and perhaps even this ladder you were perched on. Yeah. You know, I think that we all have that desire to feel worthy. And some of us with all sorts of different identities are exposed to messaging, cultural systems, economic systems, political systems that tell us that we're not right? And uh, at the intersections of all our different identities, that can cut really, really deep, right? We can move through the world perceiving a lack of worthiness that sort of follows us wherever we go. It's not from the inside, right? It's it's coming from the outside, but it follows us and it starts to inform the way we see the world and the way we form relationships. And for me, worthiness is this thing where it's like, my family, my schooling, my different jobs that I had before doing this whole writery podcasty thing, I was constantly getting this story both of how I was exceptional, how I was really smart, how I was really talented, how I was really going places. And at the same time, recognizing that those stories weren't exactly jiving with reality and trying to reconcile those things. And the only way I knew how to reconcile those things, and I, I don't think this is unusual, is chasing after validation of one form or another. I like to say that before I went through all of this, I had never met a merit badge or a trophy or an award of any kind that I didn't to win because literally those physical items, those artifacts of my worthiness were something that at least in that moment of receiving that thing, I had proof that I was okay. Mm. And in terms of like getting on top of that ladder, you know, I think that one of the systems, one of the stories that we're all told is that as we go through life, we're leveling up 
it's not just that we're learning new things, experiencing new things, but that each thing we learn, each thing we do should help us step up on this ladder. And really what this ladder is, is our cultural hierarchy. It's our social hierarchy. It's the moral framework that we use to judge who is more important, who is more worthy, who is more valid and valuable to society than others. And every rung up that ladder means that there are more people behind us. It's not just us moving up. It's literally us stepping over others and chasing after those awards or those rungs on the ladder is really a way of disconnecting ourselves from more and more people who have real needs and real worth and real value in and of themselves. This is so layered because we don't want to say that earning an award is bad. Like, Hey, it's great if you get an award and Hey, if you can use that award to leverage something for your career, do it like awesome. I think the challenge that we're pointing to here that you've really articulated so well in your book is that when we hinge everything in our life, especially our internal feelings about ourselves on whether or not we get an award, it begins to become a problem. In your book, I see it as really having two major sections. There's Mm -hmm this exploration at the beginning of the cultural influences of how we have these mindsets. And that includes major political influence as well as religious influence. And then the latter part of the book goes more into how you might begin to reframe your own thinking for your own life and frankly, your health. So let's parse out a little bit the context here and I'll add that we are in a great deal talking about the Western world, mm-hmm. the United States, and and this kind of context of that culture that we live in. And like you point out in the book, the U.S. is a big cultural exporter, so to speak. <laughs> yes. So help us understand some of the background here. What's important to understand about politics, leaders in politics who have influenced our thinking about worthiness? Yeah. Uh, So in the book, I kind of do a reverse chronology of this way of thinking that tells us that if we work hard, we're going to make it. And only if we work hard, are we worthy of respect, uh, financial comfort, like being able to take care of ourselves. Maybe today I'll start back from the beginning. So One of the things that is unique about American culture is this thing that sociologist Max Weber dubbed the Protestant work ethic. And the Protestant work ethic, and by the way, my background is in religious studies, so like I get super nerdy on this, I'm going to try and keep it quick. (laughs) But so it comes from this Calvinist background. And one of the unique things about Calvinism is that it has a belief in what they call predestination. And this essentially means that it's already decided who is saved and who is not, or who is going to quote unquote heaven and who is not going to heaven. And this predestination, as you can imagine, creates a lot of anxiety for people, right? Like, am I saved? Am I in the elite? Am 
I okay? Or have I already been damned to hell? <laughs> right? That's, that's a big thing to wear on your shoulders and have nothing you can do about it. Right? I do not come from a Calvinist background. And the idea of it to me is just like, what? Anyhow. So Calvinism creates this anxiety around literal salvation from a Christian Protestant perspective. And in this anxiety, they start to come up with these ideas of how we can tell who's okay and what's not. So literally, we start to see this division between who is worthy and who is not worthy. And one of the things that they pick up on, the Puritans specifically uh, in New England, are they're looking at who is working hard, who is invested and committed to their vocation, their calling, who is contributing to the community in this really robust way. And Weber talks about actually how the Protestant work ethic was instrumental in building the communities in New England of the, the early colonists. But as Protestant work ethics started to transform into industrial capitalism, and specifically American industrial capitalism, the community, the collective element starts to disappear, and we get the hyper-individualism that we start to see with robber barons and, and just the, you know, like the early 20th century capitalist political economy. So that's one really big influence on how we think about our own worthiness is this this work ethic idea. And at this point, you do not have to be religious. You do not have to be Christian. You do not have to be a Calvinist to have that story deeply embedded in your psyche. All right. As we get into the 20th century, the main sort of cultural and political shift that occurs is in the 70s into the 80s. And with this, we see the rise of Margaret Thatcher in England. We see the rise of Ronald Reagan here in the U.S. And this is the beginning of what's then called the neoliberal order. And neoliberalism is this very market-driven, the idea that the market will decide whether you're worthy or not. The market will decide whether this is successful or not, or that's successful or not, or whether it's important or not, right? And so again, we start to see how our worthiness is tied in these very binary terms to the mechanism of the market. And quite literally, if we are worthy, we get a paycheck, we get a house, we get X, Y, Z. And if we're not worthy, we don't. And again, that worthiness is tied to hard work. It's tied to molding ourselves to fit what the market needs from us. And in that process, we learn to keep stepping up the ladder, up the ladder and up the ladder and up the ladder. That sort of political climate is starting to shift. But for anyone born south of 2005 or so, it is deep within us and it is not going anywhere, even if if younger culture starts to move in a different direction. It strikes me how intertwined this is with the individualism and also with, to some level, religious judgment. Mm-hmm of character and morality. You know, I'd like to invite you right now to comment on 
the embedded ableism of these mindsets. Yeah. So one of the things that happens during the 20th century is we see the rise of positive thinking. And positive thinking is sort of part and parcel with a very religious undertone of if you believe the right thing, you can do anything. If you believe the right thing, you can be rich. If you believe the right thing, you can be successful, have whatever career you want. And within that, there is a profound ableism in that if you can think it, you are able to do it. In a material sense, we know this isn't true, right? Like, just because I think I want to write five books in a year doesn't mean that I can write five good books in a year. Or just because I think I should be making a million dollars and I, you know, I'm just going to focus on that. That doesn't mean that that's going to happen, but it also means that like for me as an autistic, highly socially anxious person, it also means that I can't spend as much time, say, networking as would be beneficial for me, right? Like I know what I quote unquote should be doing to advance my career, to find more readers, to find more listeners, but at the end of the day, I'm not able to, I don't have that capacity. It is not a capability that I have. And there is no amount of positive thinking that's going to change that for me. You know, I'm coming from this from a very able-bodied, able-minded, almost ready to go, right? There's just some things in there that prevent me from operating the way society would like me to. But for anyone who has is chronically ill, is disabled in any way, those things get even harder. And, you know, I, as part of the research for the book, I, I actually did some sort of textual analysis around early self-help. And it was just very clear how often these writers, the most foundational writers in self-help from, you know, the 1930s to now would repeat over and over again the story that this person, they're lazy, and that's why they don't have this. This person is sickly, and that's why they don't have more. Just the glaring ableism within these texts that really shape how we think about who we're supposed to be in this world was shocking to me. But at the same time, I know how much I do it to myself right? I know how over the years I have said yes to so many things that I didn't actually have the ability to do that I knew were going to make me sick or make me depressed or make me unable to get out of bed the next day. Why do I do that to myself? Well, it's right there. It's right there in our history and in our culture, and we reproduce it every day that we're not aware of it. In the book, you recount this story from childhood about a game of bingo. <laughs> and you talked about you're a kid and you're in this room, you're playing bingo with a bunch of other kids. And after, you know, some experiences with your numbers not getting called, you kind of break down crying. And then you explain in the book with the words that you have today as an adult, 
what was going on there. And I want to try to reflect it because I had a very similar experience as a kid. I can vividly remember I was in second grade. My mom's going to laugh if she listens to this. I was in second grade and I got sent out of the room because I was crying so much because I couldn't do the task at hand that day right the first time, like these first times I was trying to do a cursive letter, Mm. I couldn't write it correctly. And I didn't have the words then to explain what you explained in the book that I was equating my ability to do these things right, to do this achievement the right way with my own value as a human in this world. Didn't have the words for that, but that is precisely what was going on in childhood. So it reverberates for me that these things are so deeply ingrained. And I want to go now to this part in the book where you talk about women specifically. So you say, as a woman, I learned a host of shoulds and supposed tos that would prove my worthiness. I should attain a body that conforms to white, straight Western beauty standards. I'm supposed to see my value in finding a husband and caring for a family. The after effects of second wave feminism conditioned me to measure myself against standards that are traditionally coded male so that I could prove I was worthy of being a 21st century woman. Unpack this a bit for us. What do we need to understand about second wave feminism, this conditioning, and maybe how you moved past this in your own journey? Yeah, there was a piece by Anne-Marie Slaughter, I think in Slate, many years ago now, about how women can't really have it all. And I remember that piece making me angry at the time. I'm not going to remember like her arguments blow by blow. I think it probably might still make me angry, but for completely different reasons. (laughs) Instead, you know, what it makes me think of is how women are told we can have it all, but that all encompasses these contradictory things. We're told that we can have the corner office And that we can be this particular kind of mother that is always there, that doesn't miss a school function, that still volunteers, that still does blah, 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 blah. And, you know, and it's the same thing with body stuff, with beauty stuff. It's you should love your body the way it is, and it should be completely different. It's you should find a husband and settle down and have a family. And it's be an independent, sexually liberated woman, right? Having it all is literally impossible in that all has come to encompass these completely mutually exclusive things. And there is part of a system design to that because when women are, or when anyone of any gender is given these impossible things to reach for, we keep reaching. We keep working harder. We keep buying more. We keep contracting services that make our lives more convenient, that take work off our plates. And at the same time, we keep beating ourselves up. So we work harder and we buy more 
and we make try to make our lives easier. It is a cycle that feeds our economic model. And it is a cycle that is creating our mental health crisis. And it's a cycle that on an individual level can destroy our sense of self and our ability to even know what we want. In the book, you unpack some of these aspects around validation seeking, and you say that validation leads to one of two things, either burnout or undercommitment. Mm-hmm. Help our listeners understand how does validation seeking lead to these two different things and what do they look like? Yeah. So I name this cycle the validation spiral because I think spiral, we know what it's like to spiral out, right? So in this quest for worthiness, in this quest for validation and feeling like we're a valuable member of society, one of the ways that we know how to manage that is to say yes to things, to take on responsibilities, to take on relationships, to take on the burdens of X, Y, or Z, right? We take all this stuff on and sometimes literally like on the calendar, just saying yes, appointment after appointment, meeting after meeting, gig after gig. And in that process, our capacity, our resources get stretched thinner and thinner, right? We know what it's like to be overcommitted on our calendar when we literally do not have time to do all the things we've said we're going to do. But the same thing is true of our mental energy, our emotional bandwidth, our social support, our physical health. Those are resources too that get stretched thinner and thinner as we pile more and more stuff on our plates. So as we pile more stuff on our plates, those resources get thinner. And that means we can't do those things as well as we'd like. And that's a big problem because if we're not doing them as well as we'd like, that means we're not getting the validation from them that we hoped that we would. We're getting the message that, yeah, you know, maybe you're not as good as you think you are, or you're not as good as you hope you are. So what do we do? Well, we respond to that by taking on more responsibilities. And the same thing happens over and over again. And sort of the most obvious place that that can lead is to burnout. And I think the sort of discourse around burnout, even since I first started writing the book, has exploded. And I I think people have a pretty good idea of what that looks like. But there's this other thing that occurs and it's under commitment. And it's this, this, what I was talking about in terms of our resources being stretched thin and not being able to do things as well as we'd like to do. And the problem with this under commitment, not having the resources to do what we said we're going to do well, is that it chips away at what's called our self-efficacy. And self-efficacy is simply the idea that we believe we can do this thing. Like, I believe I can complete this project. I believe that I can buy a new house, whatever it is, like little things, big things. That self-efficacy is built up over a long history of us proving to ourselves little bit by little bit, ah, I have this skill. Yes, I can do this thing. Yes, I can do that thing. But it is very easily chipped away at and very quickly dismantled when 
little bit by little bit, we keep getting evidence that, oh no, you can't do that thing. Oh no, you're not good enough. You're not worthy enough for that thing. Mm. And so that undercommitment and the chipping away of self-efficacy, I think is this thing that we don't have a lot of language around on a day-to-day basis. It's not something that we're talking about the way we talk about burnout, but it is insidious in terms of our self-worth, our self-validation, and just our identities in general. Yeah, I have not heard the concept of undercommitment articulated in this kind of way. And you've got a great visual in the book that I'll attempt to describe to people. So there's two boxes. One of them is for committed and the other one is for undercommitted. So the first box is completely filled in and it represents the available resources you have. And when you're committed, those resources are allocated and sort of evenly distributed among a small number of responsibilities. And what undercommitment looks like is you start out with that same first box filled in with your resources, but then there's too many responsibilities. And so your resources are unevenly distributed and they don't quite fill up the needs of the responsibilities that you've parsed them among. So it it was really helpful for me to see that in terms of the consequence that that happens when you're undercommitted, you say yes to too many things, and what that can look like, even if it doesn't lead you right in this moment to burnout. And what you're describing just so resonates. Michelle and I did an episode on you can't have it all or having it all is bullshit and (laughs) So we have to reframe things. So maybe this is a good segue for us to start talking about some of your concepts of of how to manage this. How do we start rethinking our goal setting? So let's go to happiness versus daily satisfaction. Talk to us about this just generally as a concept. So Happiness is a concept that is shockingly under-theorized in terms of how we relate to it, what it actually is, how we achieve it, all of these things. There are plenty of psychologists studying happiness and, and all of those things, especially with the positive psychology movement. But in terms of the social components of happiness and the sort of productive components of happiness, we don't understand it very well. And we tend to put it out sort of in the future as a reward. If I do this, then I'll be happy. If I achieve this thing, then I'll be happy. And that means that we're constantly putting it off. Satisfaction for me is sort of in a whole other category. Satisfaction is the feeling that and the knowledge that you've done what you've done well that you have shown up the way you want to show up, that you've practiced the habits that you want to practice. It is a, it's a profound relationship with yourself. And in that relationship, being able to recognize that you are whole and that you are worthy in and of yourself and with yourself. That's how I think about the difference between happiness and satisfaction. I'm not anti-happiness by any means, just like I'm not anti-goal setting, but 
I think satisfaction is something that we can reach for on a regular basis in a way that happiness is maybe not. The other thing with happiness is that it tends to be something that's easily marketed to. So we get marketed products all the time that, you know, if you buy this, you'll be happier. And they don't often say that explicitly, but it's very thinly veiled and completely implied (laughs) by the ad, right? And so we start to associate happiness with consumption, which is really not helpful. Satisfaction, on the other hand, is not something that marketers use very often because it's simply not a very high activation emotion. It doesn't get us super excited. But the thing about being satisfied is that you don't want a whole bunch of new stuff and you don't want all of these things that, you know, maybe you think you should want or that society tells you you should want. Instead, satisfaction is this sort of state of being able to find your intention, find your desire, find your needs in a whole other way. And I have to to shout out to satisfaction is a word that I I really picked up on from uh, the activist and writer Adrienne Marie Brown. And one of her big questions is simply asking, are you satisfiable? And, you know, I think in today's culture, most of us aren't. And it's because we simply don't have access to or aren't creating that state of satisfaction for ourselves. And just one more thing on this point too, is kind of piggybacking off of where we were talking about commitment versus undercommitment and sort of spreading ourselves too thin. One of the questions that I've started to ask for myself, and unfortunately this is not in the book, is instead of, you know, when someone asks me, can you do this? Or when instead, when I see like maybe an opportunity that I'm like, oh, that is, that is the thing, right? Like I so want this. Instead of asking myself, can I squeeze this in? I ask, do I have what I need to do to do this well? Do I have what I need in order to be satisfied with the effort or the approach that I take to this thing? And if the answer is no, then the answer is no. You know, that's something that can be disappointing, but at the same time, I don't feel like I've given something up. I don't feel like I've disappointed anyone because I've simply acknowledged what my boundary was. I've acknowledged, I just don't have the resources for that. So that's another way I think to work that satisfaction piece in a more intentional way into daily life. And so many paradigm shifts here. I want to come back to the resources topic in just Mm -hmm. a moment. I want to come back for a moment, just say that, You have this question in the book. Do you assume misery is a prerequisite for satisfaction? I just totally laughed out loud when I read that because it's true. It's true. I have had these sort of unquestioned notions around like, well, of course, I should have to work at this job I hate for months before I earn a break to take some time off. So there's a lot embedded within us to question. Okay, so going back, renewable resources and recharging your creativity. Share with us just a couple recommendations around this. What does it look like? So it looks different for everyone, but 
everyone has resources that they can draw on that are, if not renewable, the way we think of like solar energy, they're easily replenished. So for me, that's mental energy. I typically have mental energy coming out my ears. Um, I have to work hard to turn it off. It is the resource that I have in greatest supply. And it's also something that's super easy for me to replenish in that my mental energy gets replenished through exercise. It gets replenished through reading, listening to podcasts, just sitting and thinking, (laughs) you know, there's all sorts of things that I can do that help reset my brain and, you know, fill the well up again. On the flip side of that though, is like emotional bandwidth for me or social interaction just in general. That's a resource I have in really small supply. And it's also really difficult for me to replenish. If I go speak at a conference, for instance, I might be out of commission for a week afterwards because it's just that much work for me, but also it just takes that much time to get it back. And so, like I said, for someone else, that might look completely different. For a lot of people, it would be completely opposite, right? Like my husband has overflowing amounts of emotional bandwidth and and social interaction that he can draw on. And it's very easy for him to replenish that particular resource for him. I wouldn't say that he has very low mental energy. That would be awful sounding, but he definitely has way more emotional bandwidth than I have. So I think that, you know, in terms of the resources that we have access to, which is different for everybody, and it changes with time, you know, the different conditions, different relationships, different different jobs you might have, different organizations you might be a part of is going to shift what resources you have access to at any given time. But I think one great thing that we can do for ourselves is to consider, is there a resource or two? And I define resource really, really broadly, as you can probably tell. So it's time, money, it's attention, mental energy, emotional bandwidth, social support, skills, and that list is not exhaustive. It's That's just my list. Your list might sound different or have more things in it. But if I can identify one or two of those resources that have strong supply, that's easily replenishable for me, one, I can rely on those resources more. So for instance, with mental energy, and I would say even just like writing, mental energy for writing. I know that I am always going to be cranking out more writing than the vast majority of people because that's simply what I have a ton of resources for. And so if, if I know that, then I can consider like, what does that mean for the way I earn a living? What does that mean for how I structure my day? What does that mean for the kind of opportunities I go after? Because the more I use that resource, then the less I'm drawing on these other resources to keep me going. And that means I have more emotional bandwidth for, I don't know, after work when my husband would Mm. love to have a conversation with me. And I haven't always been able to do that. So looking at that resource that's easily replenishable, that you have a lot of store in, and then 
using that to make decisions about what you commit to and what you say no to. I think the call to action here is the thing that we talk about a lot in Lead to Source, which is stop, breathe, reflect. And specifically, the reflection here is around what are things that take your energy? What are things that replenish your energy for all of these different Mm -hmm. aspects of your life and the resources that you have? And it's going to look different for you than it looks for me or Tara or anybody else. Tara, you give us this wonderful question that I know you're probably still thinking about, and that is, what does growth look like without the striving Mm -hmm. and related? Who are you without the doing? I wonder if you could just comment on where these questions came from and what they have meant in your journey, writing this book and just in your life in general. Yeah. So the first question that I came across of those two was the, who am I without the doing? And full credit to Jocelyn K. Gly um, of the Hurry Slowly podcast for gifting me that question along with, I'm sure like a million other people. (laughs) But when I first heard her state that question, it like literally blew my mind. Like I, I was working out, I was at the gym I can remember exactly where I was, what I was doing, because my brain like short circuited (laughs) that moment. Like, who am I without the doing? I have no idea. What do you mean? What is how could there possibly be somebody under the doing? The doing is the thing. (laughs) And that question sent me spiraling so much that I had to turn the podcast off. And I actually didn't go back to that podcast for a year or two after because like, I had to come up with an answer to this question. Long story short, to me, there is no answer to this question. It's sort of like a Zen koan. The idea is not to have an answer. The idea is to consider who am I without the doing? Who am I when I'm not writing? Who am I when I'm not podcasting? Who am I when I'm not being a wife, when I'm not baking bread? I am not an essentialist. I am not someone who believes sort of in the this core self. I don't believe that there is this core consistent soul self identity at the heart of me. If you do, cool. It, that's that's not sort of my philosophical tradition, but I find the idea of contemplating sort of stripping away these different facets of how I define myself to discover other ways to identify a really transformative exercise. And so that's sort of where I've left that question. It's something I still think about. It's something I think about frequently, But I'm no longer trying to find the self or the identity that is without doing, but instead considering the full sort of network of identities, network of relationships that make me who I am and trying my best not to betray any of those identities. So that's the first question. The second question, what is growth without striving? 
That question came to me through my friend, Rita Berry at a retreat. And she has this incredible business. She was flying high at this retreat of small business owners. And so she didn't really have any problems that she wanted to work out. But when it was her turn to speak, she just said, all right, so the the thing that I'm thinking about most is what does growth without striving look like? And the energy in the room changed immediately. Everyone was like, I have no idea what growth without striving looks like. And so in the years since she asked that question, I've really taken it up as sort of like this big philosophical question that I'm, I'm interested in. And so for me, I think that has to start with defining what striving is. And so in the book, I talk about how striving is that feeling like everything is riding on this, that it is do or die, sometimes literally, that it's sink or swim. And for a lot of us, for myself, certainly for Rita, that feeling of everything is on the line is with us constantly with every task, with every decision, with every opportunity. And that's something that is, it's not healthy for sure. It's not helpful either. It's not helping us accomplish or achieve what we want to accomplish or achieve in this world. It's certainly not helping us practice showing up the way we want to show up. And then I have to ask myself, okay, well, if that's what striving is, what is growth? And for me, growth is embracing the process of change. It's embracing the fact that I am constantly becoming someone new and that I have a hand in shaping who that is, but only if I'm paying attention enough to consider who I'm becoming, how I'm growing, what I'm growing into. And I can't do that if I'm striving. So I have to peel away the striving in order to grow into the kind of person or to keep growing into a kind of person that I really want to become. Thank you so much for that, Tara. Okay, I want I want to get to kind of the last piece here. We're coming up on time for the podcast. And I'd really love to leave the listeners with something actionable to take away. So what I'm drawn to here are your idea around goals versus commitment and also the concept of Mm buy-in. So, you know, pluck something out from among there and give us one of your nuggets of wisdom. (laughs) Well, I think buy-in is probably a great place to leave it only because goals versus commitments. I could talk for another hour about that (laughs) or many hours. Buy-in is the name that I give the decision to actually do what you say you're going to do. And it encompasses this psychological framework that was created by Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy called immunity to change. And when we're buying into a desire for change, a desire for growth, just wanting to do something differently than we're currently doing it, we often run into the barrier of, well, I said I want to do this, but I keep doing this other thing instead. Why is that, right? We all know how hard it is to change and to do things differently than we've done them before. So the idea of immunity to change kind of culminates in identifying the assumptions and competing commitments behind 
our lack of movement on, you know, the goal that we've set or the habit that we're trying to, to accomplish. And for me, those assumptions and competing commitments are often completely in line with the cultural and political and economic stories that I sort of start the book off with and that we started this conversation with. So I'm always looking when I'm thinking about buy-in at what is it that I am trying to do and what stories, what other habits, what assumptions have I made that are going to get in the way of that? And how can I little bit by little bit dismantle those things so that I can be all in, so that I can be completely bought in on the change that I want to make or the project that I want to create or whatever the thing might be. And I think that if you find yourself having a hard time making change, if you have a hard time doing the projects or doing the, you know, even hitting the goals that you want to hit, look for those competing commitments, look for those stories that make it hard to actually do what you say you're going to do so that you can start to remove those and give yourself the full permission and, and create the conditions for you going all in, being bought in on these things that you say you want to do. Thank you so much, Tara. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show today. Your book, What Works? A Comprehensive Framework to Change the Way We Approach Goal Setting is available on Amazon as a hardcover. It's available on Kindle and there's an audiobook version. When will the paperback version come out? I don't know. I have heard nothing about paperback yet. <laughs> All right. So in the meantime, folks, you can check out her book and where can people find you? Yeah. So you can find me at explorewhatworks.com. Um, I'm also writing on Substack now, but if you go to explorewhatworks.com, you'll find the links to Substack there. And then my podcast is also called What Works. So that's super easy. And uh, you can find that wherever you're listening to this podcast. Wonderful. Thank you again, Tara. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you so much for writing this book. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Lead to Soar. We sincerely appreciate your honest, positive reviews. You can leave questions at leadtosoar.com for Michelle and Mel to answer on future episodes. Until next time, we hope you'll use what you've learned here and lead to soar.